Thanks to everybody. Uh, a, a very uh, wonderful interview we have for you today with Michael O'Keefe. Michael, did you want to redo my intro at all? You've, you're Of all the people that have been on the show, you've got a lot of acting chops. Well, I thought you're, the, the good thing about your intro was that it was brief. <laughs> uh, you know, the bad thing is that obviously you've, you've lowered your standards and you got me on your show. <laughs> what are you talking about? Dude, you are... So, if for people who don't, I'm sure a lot of people know, obviously, in golf, the character you played. They probably don't even know anything else about you. Well, some people don't know anything about me. That's true. I would say the majority of your listeners would know that much. But there are one or two out there who probably know more than I do about myself. <laughs> like your wife and your kid. <laughs> They're not going to be listening. <laughs> They're not. They, so, so anyway, so uh, you, you're, you're, um, you're most famous for portraying uh, not even just a character in a film. It, it seems more like you embodied a movement in golf. Can you, can you just talk a little bit about that? And, and, you know, we'll get into so many other topics, I'm sure. But tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, the thing about Caddyshack was that nobody knew it was going to be what it was at the time. And it actually got a second leg or a second wind after an initial kind of, I wouldn't say flop, but more than a lukewarm reception. You know, it was not everybody's favorite movie. Um, but then somehow it got legs, and that, that story is actually a story with t- worth telling, and it's not one that I'm particularly up on, except to say it became obvious to me after a short period of time that Caddyshack was building momentum in the hearts and minds of uh, American film-going audiences. And uh, I could tell this because I would be leaving, you know, like church at 2 o'clock in the morning, which is a usual time for me when I was young. I would go to church at midnight. And that's not true. And, and anyway, I'd be walking home late at night, and someone would roll down their car window and yell Noonan at me. And this is when I began to realize that the film was starting to do well. And, and how long after the initial release or, like, the production of, of the film was that? You know, it was a couple of years in my, my memory of it all, but, of course, we're talking about almost 40 years ago, Eric. Okay, I am older than Ted Smales was, than Judge Smales was, sorry, Ted Knight. When we did the movie, I'm probably 15, 20 years older than Ted was when we actually made the movie. I'm older than Rodney Dangerfield was when we made the movie now, so it was a long time ago. So, I mean, I guess on some level I'm interested in, like, are you, are you a little bit, like, over it? Like, let's stop talking about Caddyshack, guy. No, not at all. Because, you know, one of the things that happened when the film started to take off, a couple of things happened. Uh, one was that I got started getting invited to charity golf events, and this was probably about 15 or 20 years ago. And, frankly, I hadn't really kept up with the game, and I didn't play that much for a variety of reasons. Uh, and it kind of because, you know, Caddyshack was made before golf was cool. If you know what I mean, Willie Nelson was not, you know, the Charlie Daniels band was not showing up at the Wingfoot as a guest foursome when we made Caddyshack. Right. And, you know, so golf changed over the years. Uh, But then I got invited to these charities where if you just show up and play golf, you know, they can raise, you know, I don't know, $5,000, $10,000 a foursome at these events. 
And, you know, that turns into a lot of money at a shotgun format where there's 18 foursomes teeing off, you know? Right. Um, so that became a really easy way for me to contribute, and I loved doing that. But the real turning point for me came a little over 10 years ago. And this is a story I've told before, but it, it, it bears retelling. I was doing a, a pilot for a great writer, director named Mike Binder at 20th Century Fox. And, and Mike, uh, you know, offered me the part, and it was just a wonderful gig. And I, and I showed up for the wardrobe fitting, and pretty much the first thing out of the wardrobe designer's mouth was that she was a huge Caddyshack fan, to which I replied in my normal fashion, you know, thanks. And, you know, she read me in the way that actors are easily read. And, you know, the theme of acting is you tend to not want to be pigeonholed. You kind of want people to pick up on a project, say, for instance, that you did in the century in which you're having this conversation, you know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, she, I was sort of like, yeah, thanks, whatever. And then we did the fitting, and she kind of read me, and, and she said, do you mind if I tell you why I mentioned Caddyshack? I said, of course not. Why? She said, well, my father just died, and for the last two months before he was uh, passed in the hospital, he was dying of leukemia, and we would go and visit him, and we would put on Caddyshack almost every day, and, and it really relieved the tension. He laughed, we laughed, and we all bonded and had a great time. Well... That story really, really rocked my world. And I began to realize that there's something to be said for making people laugh. And that it's a uh, rare and unusual phenomenon to be connected to a movie that has so much heat and power and legacy as Caddyshack does. And because of that, I have a wholly different uh, feeling about it. That's such a beautiful story. I, I had no idea where you were going with that. And, I mean, I feel like we're done. The podcast is over. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, that's all we've got time for, Eric. <laughs> but, I mean, no. I've got to move. There's other people I have to help in this world, Eric. <laughs> I've, I've helped you as much as I can, clearly. <laughs> how, how do you, I mean, how do you even, I mean, how do you even reconcile that? I mean, I mean on some level, like, you know, I, I'm like having a hard time even having a follow-up question, to be honest with you. Like, I mean, golf, golf isn't funny, right? Why, why isn't golf funny? Well, golf, too, I mean, you know, you, you can see the, re, you can read between the lines, like the PGA um, and, uh, you know, the, the people who have a concerted effort in Americans playing golf do a number of advertising uh, campaigns, one of which is, hey, play nine because it's quicker. And what they're, what they're really telling you is, okay, we know golf is boring, but we want you to buy equipment, and we want you to go join a golf club and spend money. So we're going to give you this ad campaign. Play nine, you know. Uh, personally, I love golf. If I, could, if I had the time to put in 20, 25 hours of practice a week, I, I couldn't be happier. But uh, I became a dad uh, about five years ago, almost six years ago now. And uh, so that's my, you know, free time. I don't. I don't want to have a good handicap and a bad relationship with my son, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the thing about uh, the movie and, and that, that, that the point of that story, you know, it's a point that's been made before, and it's been made before in American films, you know. And there's a great classic movie called Sullivan's Travels. It was made in the 40s, starred uh, Joel McRae and uh, Veronica Lake. 
uh, William Demarest. I think William Frawley may be in there as well. Lots of great character actors. And it's a Preston Sturgis movie, screwball, very funny comedy. In it, uh, Sullivan being portrayed by McRae is a famous film director who's been making all these comedies, and he wants to make a serious movie. And he sets out to make the movie, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? And you may, may remember that title because the Coen brothers pinched it and wow. made, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? And, but in Sullivan's Travels, he goes on a quest to find out about the heart of the... At the time, they would have called these guys hobo. They wouldn't have used the, the word homeless. And he ends up in a camp where a lot of these hobo, homeless men are, are living at the very, towards the very end of the movie, after a number of really insane, funny sequences. And when he gets there, he's still convinced that he should be making this meaningful drama about the current economic uh, strain everybody's living in in America. And these guys in this homeless camp happen to be watching one of his movies. And they are laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. And these are really desperate, um, hungry, unemployed, um, you know, near suicidal men um, who are having a really, really good time watching a kind of dopey comedy. And he rethinks his whole position and realizes, I'm not going to go make Oh Brother, Where Arthur. I'm going to go make another nutty screwball comedy and let these guys have a good time when it, when it comes their way. So... That theme uh, is, wor- is, is, is one that's been explored and, and worth revisiting. But especially in my case, when it becomes as personal uh, as it became when, when I had that conversation with that wardrobe designer about her father. And now, you know, interestingly enough, when I held my, you know, my inner life, uh, for lack of a better term, when I held my feelings about the film differently, when it changed... Then different things started happening. You know, I started getting invited to, you know, do screenings of the film, uh, do Q&As of the film, and get flown to, like, a little film uh, community, a little theater community out in uh, Colorado, outside of Denver. They flew me out. 500 people show up to watch Caddyshack and want to talk about the movie. And you realize, man, this movie just, for some reason, speaks to people. And I think there's a number of reasons why. And the... The most salient for me, um, besides the fact that, you know, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase were just getting started and were comic geniuses, and, uh, you know, Ted Knight and Rodney Dangerfield could certainly hold their own and were about to also score big, and Harold Ramis found a way to kind of, you know, shuffle that deck appropriately, if you know what I mean. But the real uh, driving creative force behind the picture was Doug Kenny. Um, and, And as you may know about Doug, he started National Lampoon magazine, wrote the screenplay along with Chris Miller for Animal House, then wrote the screenplay along with Brian Doyle Murray for Caddyshack and produced Caddyshack, and then died less than a year after we finished the film. And fortunately, um, a bunch of young filmmakers got together and made a story of Doug's life called Feudal and Stupid Gesture which is a, the title of that movie and a quote from Animal House that Doug wrote, which is on Netflix, and Will Forte does a great job embodying Doug Kenny along with Martin Mull, who plays Doug older as if he had lived. And Joel McHale plays Chevy. Uh, and there's some great, um, 
you know, insight into the making of um, National Lampoon, like Donald Gleason plays Henry Beard, who was part, Doug's partner. So you get a kind of glimpse behind the scenes of what those guys were like. And, you know, they got a lot right in that movie. They really did a great job uh, opening up that story, unpacking the story, as it were, of Doug Kenny. So, you know, those guys were onto something so cutting edge and so can not only ahead of its time, but at the same time connected to the times. To this day, uh, I would say, I would hazard a guess and say that if you talk to Seth Rogen or Judd Apatow or, um, you know, Paul Rudd or any of those guys that are doing, well, uh, whatever his name is. <laughs> I just forgot Will's last name. Um, you know, if you got... Um, if you got with all of them and asked them, you know, like, what were the films that got you guys started, you know, five will get you ten, they would say Caddyshack and Animal House. You right. Know? And that's, that's Doug. Right. That's, that's, I mean, there's other people involved, obviously, but Doug was the one who really saw the way in which those things worked and, and how to make them work. And you, can, you can't underestimate that type of power and insight uh, when it comes to writing because... You know, it's easy to sit back and look at the film and go, that's hilarious. But, you know, try to go back to the blank page and then see the film. You know what I mean? Right. It seems like one of the things that is, is really clever about the film, not even clever, but it, it seems, one of the things that's kind of apparent is that, like, someone somewhere along the way, and it could have been Brian Doyle, it could have been, uh, could have been Bill, um, I, it could have been you. I don't know, I don't know how many people making the film deeply love or loved golf. You know, I'm curious about that because it seems like within all the comedy and the stereotypical characters, there's still a deep appreciation for the funnyisms that happen on a golf course that you, that you notice when you spend more time there. Well, that would have definitely come from Brian Doyle Murray and his brother, Billy Murray. Yeah. Uh, Billy especially brought his own peculiar, uh, insight and idiosyncratic genius to his performance because mainly he wrote it all on the fly while we were there. And, you know, he's also another really important driving creative force in the success of the film. Um, and, you know, and he's he's a good golfer. Yeah. You know, whereas, I'm sorry, Chevy Chase is a legend and he is a terrible golfer. That's what I thought he's, was so funny is that he is purported as the best player in the film you know, he's got this. I, I think of that character a lot when I walk into my club and I'm like, Ty Webb, 68, you know, like, uh, I, I, you know, but like, but he doesn't even play golf in real life. No, he hates golf. Hates I mean, it. and, you know, it's a, yeah, and it's a testimony or testament at least to his um, capacity as an actor because you get the feeling that he's this like, scratch golfer or you know one of those golfers that gives you met you you've probably met those golfers that give strokes back to the course <laughs> you know, they're actually like a plus five or a plus i've actually played i played with a guy and studied with a guy named fred shoemaker oh yeah i know a fred great book called oh he's great uh yeah taking his extraordinary course, golf right yeah exactly right and when you play golf with him you're like what are you are you giving strokes back to the course like what's the deal he goes yeah i'm actually a plus four he's so good like a minus four. Like he's got, you know, 
he takes four strokes on his card when he starts. He doesn't get them off. That's in, he's he's um, he's also just so kind. Like a, anyone who's listening, and you don't know Fred Shoemaker. Check out Extraordinary Golf. It's a great. It's in the vein of Zen Golf. Uh, Michael, have you read Zen Golf? I do, and I know Joe Parent as well. Oh, he's and, such uh, a great I've guy. Had the, the pleasure of yeah, I've had the pleasure of taking both of their workshops. Oh, um, but for, and this is not to take anything away from Joe, but Fred is the golfer. You know, Fred's magic. Yeah. Um, and in a sense, that's the kind of golfer Ty Webb is supposed to be. He's one of those guys that can see a shot, be a shot, and make it happen. To your knowledge, was, uh, was, uh, were the characters based on any real people that you know of, that you, that you might have even met? No, I'd have to deny that. And I only use the word deny because you said the phrase to your knowledge, and all of a sudden I felt like I was on a witness stand. I could get in trouble for me. <laughs> I did spend the day in jury duty today. Um, the only loosely the the Noonan family would be loosely based on the Murray family. Really? Uh, because yeah, because they're like an Irish Catholic insane. You know, I don't know, eight or nine kids in one house, running around. You know, blah blah blah, like that. That generally speaking, that's the one uh, familial connection or or real connection. Uh, the rest, I'm sure, are just conjecture. The, all the Zen stuff. That's Doug Kenny. He's definitely wrote all that stuff for Chevy. Um, and, you know, Doug is also writing all of Rodney's stuff, although, you know, Rodney, like Billy, brought an enormous amount of improv uh, to the event, and so he, you know, he was more than capable of throwing in an alternate line that ended up being the line that was used in the movie. What was the Dalai Lama quote ad-libbed? I, I heard that. Well, you know, when Billy did that, I mean, he just, nobody knew what he was going to do except Harold, and he grabbed that pitchfork, and he just about, you know, eviscerated that young actor Peter Burkrod who was playing the guy. He was scared <laughs> shitless. Can I say shitless on your on your radio? You can show? you can say whatever the fuck about, you want, Michael. Great. Well he just about shat his pants because <laughs> Billy was really poking him with that with that pitchfork and he was like, Hey, can you lay off the pitchfork? And Billy was like, Why, what's the problem? Did you eat something for lunch we don't want to see? It's gonna be fine. <laughs> Shut up. And you know, and then he just started laying down all that Dalai Lama stuff. And that was the thing was that you know, Billy would kind of come up with something, and he would run it by Harold. They would refine it, and then Billy would go out and do it, and then they would move on to the next thing. So if you weren't paying attention, you might have missed the fact that Bill Murray was hitting comedy home runs every day with stuff that he was writing on his own. And, you know, it was being shaped by Harold Ramis and Doug kind of off camera, if you know what I mean. Wow. So, I, you know, frankly, I don't know how he did it. I mean, you could have paid me a million dollars. I couldn't have done it. I would have, I'd have been happy to take your money, but I, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So, okay, so you get a call. They say, we got a golf movie. What's your first thought? When I, wait, when I got the call to, to, do, to play the part, you mean? Yeah, yeah, that, like before anything had happened. Well, first of all, you have to understand. There's a better story, though, than me, me finding out. Because, I, you know, I went through my audition process. I auditioned twice, once in New York, once in... In L.A., and of course I lied and told them that I played golf and I didn't, and I had to figure that out. Really? Um, yeah, but the real story, and this is the more fun story, is who, who the part came down to. Like, who were the two actors they were going to cast as Danny Newman? Like, it was between two actors. I'm dying. In your mind's eye, if you can think of an actor my age. Do you know, this, do you know the answer to this question? I do not. I, I feel lucky to not know right now. Who is it? All right, so feel like off the top of your head, who is the other actor? 
you know, who might have played Danny Noonan, who's my age, who's now like a fairly well-known movie star. Um, John Travolta? Okay, time's up. Mickey <laughs> Rourke. Whoa. Yeah. So just think about that for a second. <laughs> you know, it would have been like, it would have been like when Judge Smale said to Noonan, I guess you don't want that scholarship. He would have said, yeah, you can shove that scholarship up your fucking ass. Yeah, he would have killed him. You know? Yeah, or he would have decked him. Right. I guess I don't want your scholarship. And then he would have, then he would have thrown a left cross and he would have gone into next week. Yeah, and then, so, and then you would have struggled with alcoholism yeah. on screen and it would have been very strange. It would have been an amazing... I th- thank, actually, you know what? That's a movie I would have liked to have seen <laughs> is Mickey Rourke as Danny Noonan. That's a movie I think, <laughs> I think we should go back and make that movie if we can go back in time. I would cast him and just to see it... Ha- I would give it to him and just to see that movie. That, that would be a wonderful experiment. Do you make coffee in the morning? Let me ask you one question about that coffee you make in the morning. Do you know when it was roasted? If you bought it at the grocery store, it's been stale for months. Sad news, I know. You go ahead and shed a tear. If you bought it at the local cafe, you've probably overpaid for it. Here's the deal. Bixby, B-I-X-B-Y, they cut out our favorite guy. No, our least favorite guy. They cut out the middleman. I mean, the truth is if you are the middleman... You're rock solid, but we don't, we, since we're not the middlemen, we actually want to get rid of them. We're the men on the outside or the women. Moving on. That wasn't supposed to take that long. They roast it the day you order it and they ship it right from the roaster to your doorstep. Save on the price and save on the freshness. You get more freshness. More freshness, half the price. I don't know what the deal is. Anyway, I've been roasting the faci- I went to the roasting facility the other day, and my man Miles started this really cool company, and it's a high quality outfit. That's for sure. Um, also it's like, it's like the vice balls of coffee that Jeff wrote that. That's pretty good. I do like that. Um, better coffee, better price and always free shipping. That's actually a really cool part of it. You get the free shipping. Um, so there you go. Check out BixbyCoffee.com. That's B I X B Y.com. It's going to get delivered to your door. And, uh, you know, once you get the coffee, you'll be awake for it the next time it gets delivered because it's a subscription thing. You know, you get it regularly. You don't have to go to the store for it. So anyway, check it out. BixbyCoffee.com. All right, everybody, Precision Pro. Here's the thing about Precision Pro. They got started with a simple question. Quote, why can't anyone make a quality rangefinder at a reasonable price? I also have this question. That was four years ago, and now Precision Pro Golf makes the NX7 series rangefinder that's been named the best value rangefinder in 2018. That's a big thing. I don't buy mygolfspy.com said that. My golf spy. Anyway, their rangefinders contain all the bells and whistles that golfers love without the bloated price that other companies charge. Because to be honest, nobody likes bloating, especially when it comes in your price tag. The NX7 Pro Slope Rangefinder is the number one selling rangefinder on Amazon.com right now. Is that true? Is it the number one? No one's in my house. Colt, Snowball, and Max are all in my house. Is it the number one? Check. Is Precision Pro really the number one selling rangefinder? I don't want to purport false claims. Colt's checking. Anyway, that's on sale for $218, and that's $30 off its normal price. Can you believe that? It offers slope-adjusted yardages, pulse vibration technology, which, as a human being, I love. I love pulse vibrations, good or bad. Uh, Two-year warranty. Dang, that's two years, man. That's a long time. That's longer than I've ever had a rangefinder. My last one was stolen, so if you have my rangefinder right now, it says Eric Lang on it, 
you're an asshole. Also, it comes with industry-leading precision care package that includes a free lifetime battery replacement service. A lot of script. I'm almost done, guys. Hang on. Any news, Colt? Still no news. We're waiting. For golfers, confidence is a wonderful thing. Doubt is not. Precision Pro understands that, and it's why their rangefinder is the perfect combo of performance and price. I love combos like that. Oh, my God. NX7 rangefinder is, well, look at all these reviews. Does what I wanted. Love it. Just what I was looking for. Price was right. From Lowell H. Danny B says, I like it. <laughs> We're reading real reviews. Five stars. 781 reviews. Dude, here's the deal. They sent it to me, but I haven't had a chance to play with it yet. We're going to see. We're going to see. Right now, the NX7 Pro is on sale for $30 off at PrecisionProGolf.com. Two-year warranty, 90-day money-back guarantee, lifetime battery replacement service. Lifetime battery replacement. Whoa, Cadillac Rangefinder with a VW price. I like it. That guy, I want to hang out with. Major Duffer. Let's get Major Duffer on the pod because I want to see this. But the battery replacement service is crazy. Seriously, lifetime battery replacement service. For me, I'm just learning about this. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Guys, sounds like if you don't buy this, you're the idiot. Um, so anyway, ciao for now. Adidas golf shoes, y'all. I've worn lots of shoes since I started playing golf seven years ago, but I haven't found anything that matches Adidas. It's actually very true. Boost, all capitals, folks, B-O-O-S-D, Boost is the best cushioning in the game, and they test all their shoes so that you get the stability you need for the swing that you want, or whatever. Whether it's the Tour 360, which is all around a great shoe, or the Adicross Bounce, that's what I like. Uh, I typically wear, well, I like the Pure, y'all, because they're classy as fuck. And I also like the... Uh, I like the cross-knit boost, y'all. It's an older model, but they look kind of fly. Everyone thinks I'm wearing running shoes on the course, but no. I've got stability, and I've got little nubs to keep me in check when I over-rotate with the big stick. Um, everything that they make is so versatile and comfortable, but most importantly, they're all built to perform on the course. Visit adidas.com and click on the golf section or visit your local retailer. <laughs> Maybe just go online, y'all. Who wants to go to a local retailer? Let's face it. To find the pair that's right for you. You can also follow Adidas Golf on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook for all the latest news and releases. Check it out. Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason. And we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy. And we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. So so you go in, and are, are you, like, excited for the part, or are you like, ugh, it's a golf movie? I mean, I mean, where where's the world at right now? No, no, totally cool, because, no, because Bill and, and Chevy were already already way on my radar. Chevy from National Lampoon's Lemmings, which had been on off-Broadway down at the Village Gate before, which I saw in high school. Billy was already on Saturday night, so I knew about that. Of course, I was a huge Animal House fan, so I knew about Doug. I knew about Harold, uh, because he was also one of the writers of Animal House, if I remember correctly. And I may have not credited him earlier when I mentioned that, and I should have. So, I mean, no. I mean, I, I really wanted that part. And I remember the day I found out, because I was at a screening of this movie I'd done with Robert Duvall called The Great Santini, with one of the executives from Orion, which was the distribution arm of Warner Brothers that was distributing Santini and would distribute Caddyshack. 
And he literally told me at the screening, he said, okay, we're going to offer you that part. It's your part. And I remember being like, oh, awesome. Amazing. I, mean, I was totally psyched. Oh, yeah. I was totally, totally psyched. So, but you don't have a golf swing. So what do you do? How do you get the golf swing? Because you have a pretty good swing, man. Yeah, so I went to the wing foot, and the, the, the uh, pro at the time was someone named Tom Neoporti, who was, uh, you know, had a real PGA Tour pro uh, career back in the 60s. So now, of course, it's in the 70s. He's the teaching pro at wing foot. He's got an assistant's name, uh, assistant named Dave Schultz. And I essentially go to the Wingfoot every day for six weeks because that's where I grew up and caddied when I was a teenager. No way. So my, yeah, my parents and brothers and sisters, and most I'm the oldest of seven, not unlike the Murray family, and most of them were still at home. I guess I was 24 when we did the movie, so at least five of my brothers and sisters were still living at home at that point. So I went back for the summer and... Every day got up and went to the wing foot and took a golf lesson and played golf. Then when we went down to Florida, I saw one of the Toski brothers. You may remember them. They have a kind of a legendary legacy in Florida golf, teaching family. And um, one of them, Ben Toski, was free. And I saw him. When I wasn't on camera, I was taking a golf lesson. Wow. So that when I got on camera, I was at least confident. And I actually had some moments like that trap shot that almost goes in. That was for real. Um, like I was a trap shot. I actually hit and I almost hold it on the first take. Amazing. Sink that caddy shack, the caddy tournament putt on the first take. Um, you know, I had a couple times, frankly, you know, I thought my hips were a little out in front of my swing every once in a while, but they were ready <laughs> to move on and we didn't get a chance to, you know, but I had that reverse curve back, you know, that C curve that yeah, the they VJ. had back in the day in the seventies, you know, the VJ sink. So, and that was the goal, you know, that really high, high finish and that, you know, that w- way bent back. Uh, and we were hitting blades back then. You've got to remember it's the 70s. So I had these Tommy Armour blades. You know, there was none of those, like, you know, ping clubs with the two-inch back, you know, and the little assist you get from all that. There was none of that back in the day. Right. Bad shots were bad. So so you're – so wait. I, I noticed you calling it the winged foot. I, I've never heard it called that. I called it winged foot. I, I've never played there, but it, wh- why do you refer to it as the winged foot? Uh, because if you look at their logo, that's what it says, I think. Really? Huh. They're kind of like the New York Giants or the New York football Giants. Uh, if the you know Ohio I mean. State. You, you, the, yeah, yeah, that's, that's something those uh, – that's what those football players do when they talk about their school, right? Right. The wing Yeah, it's foot. like that. I like that. My yeah. brother, by the way, just to sidebar, my brother Billy, who's a year younger than me and actually a great golfer, was the president of the Wingfoot Golf Club as an adult later Whoa. in life. For real. So you've spent a large portion of your life, both publicly and privately, involved in some way with golf. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I mean, you know, I love golf. Like I said, I mean, if I could, you know, what I, I like that whole uh, Chivas Irons side of golf. Yeah. You know, that Golf in the Kingdom, that Michael Murphy book. That's what I love about golf is that, I mean, it is, it is far and away the hardest sport. No matter what Ted Williams ever said about hitting a baseball, hitting a golf ball is harder. And... Um, when it goes right, I don't have to tell you. I mean, I don't have to tell any golfer listening. When it goes right, when you, you know, when you draw a ball down onto a green and it lands stiff and you got to, you know, 
three and a half foot putt for birdie on a par four, you're thinking, man, I just nothing like it. It's so beautiful. Um, you know, I think it was Arnold Palmer who said, you know, golf is, is imagination through the hands. And when you can, when you can see what you want to do and then do it, it's, it's really gratifying, you know, and rare and makes it fun. And, you know, like, like they always say, like that one or two, if you're, if you're a, <clears throat> a, a hacker or a duffer like me, those one or two good shots will bring you back the next time, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, so so you, so what, you wouldn't have been playing golf at all in your life had it not been for the film? Is that true? Wait, I'm sorry. Can, can you ask me that question again? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so I mean, you, you grew up caddying and, and you had some golf experience, but but – was the film what made you kind of fall in love with the game as a player or were you, or was that, cause you said you didn't have a swing yet. So were you just changing your swing or were you sort of changing the way you no, felt I mean, about I the game? I mean, I was really, I was no, I was nowhere near a golfer when we started that after I, you know, I had flipped the part. Um, and I would say that the film, that film actually did give me the gratification of, um, let's just say Caddyshack was my first date with golf. That's probably a better way. <laughs> But, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And it yeah. was a good first date. Yes, and it brought me back. <clears throat> and fortunately for, for everybody concerned, I was practicing safe sex at the time. You were what? I was practicing safe sex at the time. That's important. So, that's very important. Uh, you know, I mean. As a parent, I can't tell you how important that is, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you're in L.A. now, and flash forward, you're you're doing a play. You're doing a live performance. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm really, really excited about this play. It's a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning play, Tony nominated play for best play last season, 2017 on Broadway, called Sweat by Lynn Nottage. And it's a brilliant insight written prior to 2016, by the way. Um, and a brilliant insight into the kinds of social and economic forces that are pulling apart the working class of America, even as we speak. Um, there are, uh, in the, in, it's, a, it's a small ensemble of seven or eight actors. Each of them has their moment, and each of their stories is told um, in depth and uh, uniquely. So there's an African-American woman and a white woman working for a... Uh, uh, a steel mill, and they are both uh, in line for a promotion to management after 24 years on the line as union workers. Uh, and then, so their story is centered around the dilemma that arises when the black woman gets the uh, job and the white woman is not happy about that. And their friendship thoroughly dissolves around that. There are, each of them has a son, who are all, and both of the sons are working on the floor of this steel mill. The um, management locks out the workers and the sons get caught up uh, in the anger and the, and the vehemence of the pro-union movement during the lockout, and it's made very clear that uh, they spent eight years in jail before the play begins. So then we follow their dilemma through a flashback, where we first see them with a parole officer, and then we see them before it all happened. So you see the lead-up to this event that transpired that sent these two young men to prison. And I'm not going to tell you the actual event itself because the brilliance, one of the brilliant things about the play is the way in which that's revealed. 
Right. Um, and and so I play a bartender uh, who is the uh, the keeper of their secrets, as it were. Uh, and uh, and there and the play, the majority of the play takes place in his bar. Um, and I have a, a barback who's a Hispanic, a young Colombian named Oscar, who's directly involved in this violent incident that sends these two young men to prison. And he also, we follow his track, because he crosses the line and takes the offer from management to get $11 an hour because it's a lot more than he can make as a barback. And does, he doesn't, he kind of understands that he's causing a problem for himself, but he doesn't realize how deep the problem runs until it's too late. And it's my job to sort of uh, hip him to that, if you know what I mean. Uh, anyway, Lynn Nuttage, the playwright, is all so all over this topic and these characters that it is a wild ride, and it's a lot of fun and very smart. And I think I think it speaks to the zeitgeist of what we're living in now. And I couldn't be happier to be working with uh, the people that are, you know, all these other actors that we're doing it with at the table. And uh, where can people uh, ch- when and where can people check it out? It's in Los Angeles. When does it open? We do our first preview August 29th. We run through October 7th. We are at the Mark Taper Forum, which is downtown on Grand. And as the uh, the advertising slogan say, take me to the taper. Um, so anybody who goes to the Center Theater Group webs- website can find us there, pick up tickets, come down. Uh, and if they use your name, Eric, guess what? What? They get no They're discount? They're get a discount. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they will, they will be able to get a seat. <laughs> what if I – I'm going to come on the 29th. I'm free. Uh, I would love to come. So I'll be there. If anyone out there wants to come with me, we'll come. But uh, don't expect some type of meet and greet from Michael. He's going to be in character the entire night. Is it a tough uh, uh, is it is it a tough role for you or are you just sort of like – I'm sure some roles are easier than others. How does that work for you? Yeah, it, it, some roles are easier than others. I would not say this is a particularly tough role, but it's a sophisticated little turn we have to do here. It's a real uh, ensemble dance, and there's lots of overlapping dialogue, conflicting emotions. Uh, also, the taper, for, for those of your listening audience who don't know, is what we call a thrust stage, meaning that it's like a three-quarter circle around the, the stage. So, like, at any given moment... Uh, you could be have you could have your back to more than a third of the audience in a very normal staging event. So you have to be prepared to convey all the all the conviction of your character while being turned around and not necessarily facing your audience. And that's an interesting little trick to turn. That's the fun of it. You know, the challenge, the real challenge of theater is once you get it memorized and you know where you're going to go to do what you're going to do. Then the real challenge is just making it. Uh, spontaneous and real every day and finding why that performance that particular day is going to be the way it is and when you kind of catch the wave of the day and you understand its energy and where the day is heading then you can give a performance that's aligned with that and then the other actors and these actors are good enough to know how to do this the other actors kind of jump on the wave with you and then everybody kind of lands on the beach at the end of the play if you if that's not too much a strain on the on the wave metaphor. Um, and, you know, it, and, it, and it has a kind of uh, magic. You know, theater's ineffable. You know what I mean? It, it, it magically appears in this space where everybody is, and then it goes away. And then it's not there, and the people aren't there anymore, and it's over in two hours. Uh, and that's, that's really exciting. It can be a real challenge. 
You know, it's interesting, like, like talking about characters, you know, I'm, I'm starting to kind of have a question about going back to Caddyshack cause for the golf audience. Um, what, you know, I mean, it's interesting that Danny Noonan, is, 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 is he the main character of Caddyshack? Well, he would be the protagonist. Uh, and if we had shot this screenplay that was originally written, it would have been much more about a coming-of-age story about Danny Noonan. Right. But we did not. And they realized when we got down there, I think much to their credit, Harold Ramis realized that he had essentially his version of the Marx Brothers, you know, and um, which, of course, made me gummo Marx. <laughs> um, but he had Ted and, 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 and Rodney and Billy and Chevy. And when he had them in the room, he realized, oh, we got to go with this. This is the story is these, these four guys. And how they don't like or do like each other, and what happens uh, when they when they mix it up. That's the real story. And the Danny Noonan thing is, in a sense, becomes the the story arc that you hang that on. Had we made the movie that they intended to make, it would have been much more like a coming of age story. But we didn't, and I, you know, I think that's great because we have Caddyshack now, not you know the Danny Noonan story, which I don't think would have been. <laughs> Even hearing myself say that, I, I go, yeah, that's not a movie I could have seen. Yeah, it is. It's it 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 would completely change it. It would make it much heavier. I mean, because were you coming at it looking at this as an opportunity for a dramatic role or a comedic role? Oh, hardly. No, I mean, we knew it was going to be a comedy. <clears throat> you know, and every, everybody knew. Everybody saw that coming, and there was no doubt about that. But it wouldn't. It would have been. You know, it would have been. There would have been much more screen time for me. Um, you know, which is a good thing. But frankly, you know, I mean, I was still finding my way back then. You know, I was 24 in, in many ways. and Yeah, and I hadn't really done that much. Uh, certainly had not done any leading comedic roles up until that point at all. And so I kind of had to cut my teeth. And if you go back and if you sat with me as an actor, I could say to you, ooh, I stink in that scene. Or, oh, I'm really uncomfortable in that take. Or I didn't like <laughs> that at all. And I wouldn't just be, that's not just self-deprecating or, you know, I, it's not like I have an issue watching myself work. It's just, you know, factually speaking, we, we know, uh, as actors, we know when we have it together and we know when we don't. And it's very, very easy to see that. Um, so having said that, you know, I was really happy to be a part of the film and happy that, you know, my character maintains a certain kind of staying power. But the real, the real uh, money in the movie is uh, Billy and Chevy and Ted and Rodney. That's, that's why the movie works. Sure, but I, I think at, on some level, though, Michael, y- your performance and your character uh, is, is, I think, what people actually relate to when they watch it, though. And, and that's what I think is really interesting. That's why I was thinking about, is it a dramatic role or is it a comedic role? Because your comedy in the film comes off much more serious than anybody else's, right? You're not a caricature. Everyone else is sort of playing a, a cartoon almost and and you're this person almost like uh, who framed roger rabbit you know you're you're like existing in a real situation you have real stakes and at the end i mean everybody wants you to win so on some level like that that must have been uh I, I, that must i would imagine that'd be kind of hard to shoot uh and 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 try to especially at 24 but i mean you know, at any age, really trying to figure out where's your um, temperature in the scene, you know? Well, that's the job, you know, and I have a, first of all, thank you for saying that. And I'm, you know, to the extent that people are concerned about Danny and Sink in that final punt, 
uh, the putt, sorry, at the end of the, uh, of the film, then I, you, in, a, in a way, you're right, I did my job if they really want him to sink that putt and win, win the, you know, the, the match. Um, and, you know, that's what we do as actors. And fortunately, and I haven't said enough about Harold Ramis yet, really, fortunately, I had someone like Harold directing me because Harold Ramis was one of the most affable, intelligent, um, uh, visionary directors of his generation. And most people don't necessarily put him up there with some of our great American film directors. But if you go look at uh, a film like Groundhog Day, um, you begin to realize just how amazing Harold was as a director. And I have to tell you how great he was with actors. Because, you know, Chevy worked a certain way. Billy worked a certain way. Ted worked a wholly different way. And they didn't necessarily get along. Ted and Chevy were not, not at like, you know, uh, in lockstep as we went forward. And then Rodney worked a whole nother way. Um, and it was, it was Harold who saw a way to kind of uh, corral all of their talents um, and bring them together into, into what we see in the final film. And it was also Harold was the one that was making, making sure I was modulating things uh, in a way in which it would serve the story. What, Michael, when was the last time you saw Caddyshack? You know, I, I, can't, I can't remember the last time I actually sat down and watched the film. I mean, I saw it in the theaters when it was released in 1980, and occasionally when it's on television, I'll watch a scene or two. But, you know, I, I'm just not going to... I don't sit down and watch my, my movies. I have other, I have other pursuits. That, that's a common... I've so, heard that a lot, and I even... I kind of experience it, too. Like, in the, but, I mean, you know, on a much smaller level, obviously, but, you know, like, I'll watch a clip of something. Like, you know, we do this show, Adventures in Golf. I'll watch a clip of it, but... It's almost like I don't know. Was it? What is that feeling? It's like impatience or something, or like you already know it, and like well, it's work. You know, what I mean, it's it's work for us. You know, in the end, no matter how great it is, you know. And I've had an actually, I've been, I've had an opportunity to be in, you know, a bunch of pretty good movies besides Caddyshack. Right. Uh, but it's not like when they're on TV. Like I might go, oh look, there's Michael Clayton. I think I'll look at me do that scene with George Clooney, and then three minutes into the scene, I realize. Oh, I'm thoroughly depressed because I look like George Clooney's fat, bald friend. I'm, you know, and he, he looks like a movie star, so I'm not going to watch that anymore. You know, we have so – everything's personal, and at the same time, it's professional. So you watch yourself for a few minutes and go, yeah, I guess I was okay in that. And then, you know, you move on. Or if, like Sean Penn directed this great movie with Jack Nicholson in which he plays a detective who, on the day of his retirement, finds out about, about the murder of a nine-year-old girl who I play the father of. And Jack and um, Robin Wright and Sam Shepard, um, uh, Helen Mirren, Vanessa Redgrave, Benicio de Toro. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, there's just an, an, the list of actors in this movie is like, oh, my God. Well, I mean, I think I've seen that movie once, and it was at the screening. And right. if it's on TV, I'm like, oh, cool, there's that. That's great. But, you know, you don't go back and, like, I don't know. To me, it's it's not it's not it's not something I particularly enjoy because I just think about oh, did I really do what I wanted to do there? And you know, or the the fun part is when when it is fun, you can go like oh, I remember that day. That was the day we were in Vancouver, and there was a horrible snowstorm, and we had to all of a sudden improvise this snowstorm into the movie. That kind of thing. Right. Um, it's not an escape. Know, it's, it's gratifying, 
but it's it's work too yeah. in the end, you know. Yeah, every, everybody else watches it and they get to escape from reality, whereas you're just sort of further plunged into your own reality of an actor. In a way, like one of the things I like, um, Bill Haber's got a great series on Netflix now. I forgot the name of it for a second, but it's about a hitman who wants to be an actor. Um, and Henry Winkler's in it. Henry Winkler is knocking this thing out of the park, by the way. And Stephen Root, one of my favorite actors in the world, is in it. And Haber is really good. He plays a guy who's essentially Stephen Root's like his, you know, uh, control in uh, some, you know, uh, three-digit government agency that sends off people to kill the people that are standing in the way of the American interests. And Haderer is kind of wanting to be an actor. You know what I mean? So he's trying to trying to juggle getting an offer to do a dog food commercial and be a hitman, you know? Um, and it's really, really funny. But generally speaking, I really don't like movies about the business. Like, I won't sit still for a show like that unless it's... Amazing, and this one is Barry. That's what it's called. It's called. It's called Barry. I'm so glad I remembered the name of that. What about Bowfinger? Uh, you like Bowfinger? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I did because I thought they got that right. Yeah, that was hilarious. Uh, you know, that's sort of like let's just let's just pretend to make a movie here. Right. You know, that was that that part was that so, part was funny. So, what do you watch? Like, what are you watching right now? What do you what are you like obsessed with in your life right now? Is, is this watches? Uh... Well, because I have a five year old. No, I have a five year old son. You know, I'm watching. I'm trying to get him to watch BBC documentaries about Blue Planet. You know, as opposed to Dinosaur King, uh, right. which doesn't necessarily speak to my deepest needs. Um, whereas, if he and I are watching uh, David Attenborough talk about the uh, habit uh, of a chameleon and its capacity to extend its tongue, you know, 36 inches and grab a grasshopper off a tree. And, and my son's interested and I'm interested. Well, that, that makes for good TV watching. Dude, I love um, Planet Earth. I just watched, I just watched the Wachowski's uh, Netflix series called Sensate. Um, oh, yeah. Which I thought was amazing. That's the Matrix, uh, uh, the Matrix guys, right? Or the Matrix, yeah, yeah. It was the Matrix guys. Yeah. Now it's the Matrix this- brother and sister. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're, they're pretty gender fluid now. It's hard to talk about them as brothers, yeah. sisters, brother, sister, or sisters. I'm not sure yeah. how we... They're out of the matrix. I do that without stepping on some... Yeah, without the appropriate uh, uh, pronoun. But, you know, the, or, you know, in this case, noun. Yeah. But, you know, the, um, the thing about that movie, uh, the series, sorry, Sensate, that was really genius. Uh, I love premises like, you know, there's eight people who are psychically connected. They don't realize they're psychically connected. Some of them don't even realize they're psychic, and now they're going to have to figure out how to utilize those powers, and it turns out survive because there's an entity that's trying to kill them. And um, Yeah, don't spoil it for me. I'm going to start it tonight. Oh, let me tell you something. It's amazing because one of them is a cop in Chicago, and the other, the other is a DJ from Iceland. One no is way. a bus driver in Africa. One is a movie star in Mexico. One is a... Um, transgender woman in San Francisco who's a hacker. So they all um, get their due, and it's, it's an international cast with international locations that are filmed. There's so much production value. Uh, also great music, great party sequences, and I have to say, uh, very erotic. Um, and it was also the, the, the Mexican movie star's story is actually particularly... Uh, poignant because he's gay 
and he's living a hidden life. And it, through a set of circumstances that I won't plot spoil for you, it, he's outed. And it's one of the first times I watched a film about a gay man being outed that I actually really got caught up in what it means for him and, and how his, his life has changed. And this actor uh, who plays him, whose his name is, is escaping me, I feel bad about that, he really brings this um, really deep insight to the performance. And when he and his lover are confronted with having to go public, it's really mind-blowing. Interesting. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to start it tonight. I'm going to go cook some uh, chicken from ButcherBox. Hey-o. And, and then I'm going to make some popcorn. And then I'm going to watch Sense8. Because, you know, my, my neighbor has been telling me to watch Sense8 for the past, like, six months. Maybe not that long. They're right. <laughs> They're right. What, They're right. Um, uh, when are you going to play golf next? What do you got? What, any, any plans? Right now, never. You know, the never. only time I've actually played golf in the last two or three years, I got asked to go play with Sergio Garcia in the Pro-Am at the LA Open a couple of years ago, and that was the last time I played. And that was, a, you know, it was the year that he won the Masters, so that was a lot of fun. Whoa. But frankly, I don't have to, I'm, I'm working too much, you know, which, you know, I thank my lucky stars I'm working too much. And when I'm not working, you know, I try to spend time with my kid and, and be there for him because, you know, the... This childhood thing is uh, flying by, as they say, you know, in, in the wink of an eye, I'm sure he's going to be. I think the event uh, that I'll be looking forward to, in a sense, or at least planning on, is the day he gets his driver's license. Because then I think our bond may distinctly change at that point. Cat's cradle, uh, man. Until then, well, until then, man, I'm going to be there uh, 24-7 when I can. Yeah. Him. And that's actually one of the great things about being an actor is that even when you work a lot, you don't work all the year. Uh, so I do get, like, long stretches of time where, like, I'm the one driving my kid to school every morning and dropping him off and picking him up and asking him how his day was. And I know the name of all his friends and all his teachers and all of his activities. And, you know, I know that Monday's a, a gym day and Tuesday's a library day and Wednesday, Wednesday's an art day and you know, Thursday afternoon after school, there's soccer practice because I'm the one taking them there. And, you know, in the end, being a parent um, is, is, is the most gratifying thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm very grateful to have him in my life. And, you know, he and his mother are really the loves of my life. So I'm a, I'm a pretty lucky guy. That's awesome, man. The way you describe that uh, is really beautiful and uh, makes me, like, look forward to that. Go for it, dude. Yeah. Moving on. You know, no, more, 60, no more therapy. I'm 63 and I'm still, hey, I'm, I'm 63. I'm still firing lead bullets. I, you never know. I might have another one. I love that, dude. I'm 37. So wait, you were 58 when you had your first kid? Yeah. That is so fucking inspiring right now. I have 21 years, yeah. Michael. Think about it. Um, quick question. Uh, so you played golf with Sergio. Uh, did you text him when he won the Masters? <laughs> well you know i had a great time with sergio but i have to say he did not give me his phone number when you didn't you didn't ask you should have so, just been like give me your number sergio so i can't say i can't say i texted him <laughs> but i did do a movie with mark i did do a movie with mark Wahlberg this year so i'll just ask mark to text him I'm yeah sure mark will mark will fire it off how's he to work with he's a he's a hard worker i've heard oh man this guy does not stop working yeah, he's just he, always he's got doing something. Lined up from, he's going to be doing leading roles until he's sixty-three years old, like me. So, you know, Mark, he's, he's he's booked until twenty forty. 
He uh, he plays a lot at Wilshire. I think he. I, I don't know if he's currently a member. It's in my club over in Hancock Park. I don't know if you've ever played it. You're more than welcome to join. Bring your five year old. Um, but uh, he uh, he plays there a lot, and apparently his mo is he plays with two caddies and he runs. <laughs> yeah. No, he'll do like nine holes in like you know like under an hour easily. Like he'll do crazy. He's like, yeah, I played the other day. I got finished eighteen and one thirty eight. I was like. What did you just say? Yeah, crazy. What are you talking? What are you talking about? Crazy. Um, so, have you played golf in Scotland at all? Or we're almost done. Don't worry. I know. I know you got to go. But uh, maybe I played in Ireland. I played Royal. I played Royal Portrush in Ireland, which was fantastic. Yeah. Um, by the way, go online and look at my Twitter account if you can. Yeah. Uh, and I posted a couple of years ago. My wife did a photo mashup of me and uh, Rory McIlroy. <laughs> <laughs> he is a dead ringer for Danny Noonan. Yes. Back in the Go day. Go back and look at that. I did a photo mashup. It's like, oh, my God. What is and, the and uh, I actually sent them over to Linda Cohen at ESPN. I was like, is anybody else picking up on this? But come on, Rory McIlroy's Danny Noonan come to life. Hilarious. He is. He was kind of nerdy, and then all of a sudden, just a stud. What, so uh, for the people who are listening, uh, they can follow you on Twitter, wherever. What, what is the, where else can they follow you? How, can they, how do they type the letters? Uh, my my Twitter handle is Mokeef Man M O K E E F E M A N. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and I'm at the Taper Man. Come on down. I'm gonna be there. I'm serious. I'm serious, man. I'm gonna be there on the 29th. Um, I would love to. Uh, I'd love to say hi because so far we haven't actually met face to face. So if that's possible, I suppose we can discuss those details not on the podcast. Well, there's they. You know, it's like the traditional, like you've seen in the movies. There's this thing called the stage door. You just go there. And you go inside and say, hey, I'm here to see Michael O'Keefe. And then, you know, we hang out afterwards. Okay. Those of you in L.A., don't do that because you're going to get turned away. The only person you can get in is me. Okay? <laughs> um, what, uh, anything else? We, any, any great story? You ever have a hole-in-one? Any great golf story you want to leave us with at the very end? Well, you know, I think your listeners will appreciate uh, my brevity when I say, hey, do the ball. Whoa. That's awesome. Um, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for your time. Um, I, I, uh, I wish we had more of it always, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple weeks. Okay, Eric. Take care, man. Thanks. Thanks.